Let me pray again. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Father, may these words be in sync with what you have done, are doing, and will do. In and for humans, creation, and your shalom. Your intended shalom, Lord God. Amen. So last week, as Dick reminded us, for us to consider shalom, God's intended purpose for all of creation, humans and the non-human world. So we have to keep in mind these, this staggering sweep of God's story which is our story and creation's story. Both the beginning and the end, Genesis to Revelation. The past and the future. What direction is God shalom heading for creation? And how is God at work in creation now for Shalom. That's a lot of ground to cover. Um, this morning, I'm just going to be speaking about what we call the natural world. Uh, creation, all of creation apart from humans, although we are not apart from creation. And I want to begin this morning with a tale of two cathedrals. Two temples, two intended meeting places for God and humans. The first was created by God. The second by humans. So you've been looking at a view of Muir Woods, a remnant of the ancient redwood forests in California. A friend of mine took this picture on a trip I led there uh, last fall. Walking among these ancient giants stirs up something within us, a sense of something beyond ourselves. All through the natural world are these echoes and whispers of something more than we can see. And with that sense of something more, some are tempted to worship what they can see, worshiping created things instead of the creator. Our scripture today is from Paul's letter to the Romans, to the church in Rome. And Romans begins in its very first chapter with the story of God, humans, and creation. The breaking of shalom. Humans disconnected from God, shalom broken between humans and God, and then humans began worshiping created things instead of the creator. Paul describes their hearts were darkened, their thinking became futile, purposeless, disconnected from God's purposes, disconnected from God's shalom. Notice how when the shalom between God and humans was broken, right alongside it, the relationship between, as God intended, between humans and creation was broken as well. 
and our task to care for creation was corrupted. I read Romans 1. I read it as both aspects of prophecy, of telling forth and forthtelling. Our original task was to care for creation. The words ring strangely on our ears. They certainly ring strangely on the ears of my friends involved in creation care, involved in environmental work. And I want to put that out there and and dig into that just a little bit in a moment. God gave humanity dominion over fish of the sea, birds of the air, over every living thing that moves upon the earth, we read in the beginning. Dominion over and care of nature is an original part of what it actually means to be human, to be created in God's image, to be God's image bearers in and for creation. And most importantly, when you hear the word dominion, we need to hear to rule as God would rule. And how God operates, as Dick walked us through with a sermon on the Mount, is so often so much different than how we would operate, how we would rule. So how have we done? How have we done with our unique position as even those who have no vocabulary for God, for the Bible, for dominion, people who have not that vocabulary, even they are seeing more and more now that we are a unique species on the earth. The only species that can see across centuries, the only species that can see across habitats, see around the globe, and even, yes, look, see Earth from space. How have we done? Well, we've led the people of the Earth to ask this question. And you can hear that question echoing in some of the struggles that people have around the earth with what's happened to the earth. There's been a shift even further from the biblical image of humans being like this from the beginning with creation to the point that you will hear language, and I I walk with this a lot in my work, that humans are an invasive species on the earth, that the earth would be better without humans. I want to consider that this has gone so far from how God intended this relationship to be. We are connected with creation in ways we are only beginning to trace out, not just physically, but spiritually. So what we have discovered is that we have power beyond what Paul was thinking about or considering. We have power to change the very systems of the earth, to remove plants and animals from history. Even the smallest of creatures, the insects, we're now discovering something extraordinary. And those of you who drive on summer nights, cast your mind back 30 or 40 years ago. To drive on a summer night around here meant that your windscreen was covered with bugs. Hello. Drive on a summer night now. This was first from scientists in Britain and Europe. We have something very fundamental that's happened, even to the smallest of the creatures, that supports this interrelationship that God made of creation and humans. 
It's sobering. But in my work, I'm not discouraged. I get angry sometimes. And I, I grieve sometimes. But my ultimate hope is on something else that I'd love to share with you. A story of two cathedrals. Well, where's the other one? Here it is. Some of you might recognize Notre Dame. Much in the news last month. Such extraordinary beauty and history. But Notre Dame is also a monument to how Christians lost their way, thinking about God's shalom, God's purposes, God's kingdom. It's good for us to remember that the time of the great cathedrals in Christendom was also when the human divorce in our thinking about heaven and earth was only made deeper. When many Christians pursued a view of God's kingdom unlike anything Jesus taught and lived. The time of the cathedrals was also the time of the crusades when the sword replaced the cross with much dishonor and shame for the church. But like the cathedrals themselves, an even deeper problem, Christian teaching pointed more and more up to heaven and away from earth, even as the cathedrals themselves did in their glorious structure. An escape from the corrupted and doomed earth, an escape from our perishable bodies. A tale of two cathedrals. Both intended as places where God and humans come together. And both are perishable. Maybe, maybe like me, when you saw this cathedral in flames. Perhaps like me, you, you still grieved with the people of Paris when Notre Dame burned. Even considering, yes, yes, the dark history and the wrong paths that that cathedral also represents. Because despite this corrupted history, God in his grace and faithfulness still worked through the church during the time of cathedrals. I have no doubt that God in his mercy and grace whispered his presence to many visitors inside Notre Dame. Because our God is faithful, our God is merciful, and our God is always speaking. Even as God whispers today in the ancient redwood groves, perhaps like me, you felt grief thinking about the future of nature, especially alongside your Christian faith. What's going to happen? Why does it matter? Nature as we see it now is perishable. Transitory, subject to aging, subject to death. Uh, so are we in our physical bodies. But nature today still proclaims the glory of God. You can't read any page in the, in the Psalms and not hear that shout. Or even in the prophets throughout the Old Testament, nature proclaims the glory of God. It talks about nature speaks to us about interrelationships. And one thing depending on the other. Um, it talks to us about creativity and wisdom and the community forming nature of the Trinity itself. Its voice goes out to all the world. So the influence of God's spirit whispers through nature. But where is God 
in nature? Where is God among us? Consider some words spoken at you know, yet another temple. King Solomon. He had a prayer. The temple in all its glory, that cathedral in all its glory was built. And the prayer dedication caused him to stop and think, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Even heavens, the highest heavens can't contain you, much less this temple I have built. And God answered that question. Will God indeed dwell on earth? The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen the glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Incarnation itself is God speaking back into creation, into human lives in a profound way. In Colossians, uh, we read that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. For this purpose, watch closely, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. God's incarnation as Jesus Christ, the cross, and as we'll see in a moment in the resurrection, is more about saving human souls. It's more about than redeeming our lives. God is at work in a deeper, more profound way than we quite know. And I want to be so careful here because there's so much mystery and I don't want to misspeak. But this is shouted not just in these few verses. It's shouted through the whole Bible. God's people and God's land. Creation is not a failed project to be discarded and left behind. God is faithful. I like this quote from Randy Alcorn. God has his hands on the earth. He will not let go, even when it requires his hands be pierced with nails. Both his incarnation and those nails secured him to earth and to its eternal future in a redemptive work far larger than most imagine. Christ bought and paid for our future and the earth's. We have a struggle. As I, in my early teachings, and my early readings as a Christian, I came away with the thought that the earth was extra, a stage set that we walk across on our way to another place. And that's not what the Bible teaches. Would humans be better without the earth? Well, we might as well ask, would humans be better without physical bodies? Our bodies, our earth. And the answer to that, just like the answer with incarnation and the crucifixion, is very clear. A wonderful image from Caravaggio of Thomas, who didn't believe the resurrection, struggled with it. Unless I touch, unless I see, and he did. He saw a body that he could touch. He saw wounds that he could feel. He watched Jesus eat a fish. Jesus' physical body was resurrected. What does that say to us? It might have been possible, let me share this quote, we could say before Christ rose from the dead for someone to wonder whether creation was a lost cause. 
if humans consistently act to uncreate creation and each other, did did this not mean that God's handiwork was flawed beyond hope of repair? It might have been possible before Christ rose from the dead to answer in good faith, yes, creation is doomed. Before God raised Jesus from the dead, the hope we call Gnostic, the hope of redemption from creation rather than for the redemption of creation, might have appeared to be the only possible hope. A one-way ticket out of here. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And that rules out other possibilities. And it can also be strongly argued that the resurrection demonstrates the transformation rather than the replacement of the physical body. Are you with me? This is what happened to Jesus. And therefore, this one's good. I'd love to talk about this in the discussion group. And therefore, by implication, God intends for the material world to be transformed, not discarded. Some thinking there, some thinking that might echo in your heart and mind, even as it has in mine. So in our scripture for today, the verse after what was read, what you and I just read, says the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Oh, look, it starts with for we know. Paul assumes that his audience knows this or has a background on this. Now, Paul's not thinking about global warming and extinction. And many people try to use this verse as something of an environmental mantra. And I had thought of that that way. But you can't get there from here. There's something else going on in this section of Romans. And we need to be faithful to the context it's in, both immediately around the verse and in the book as well as the whole Bible. For we know the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Notice this. These are not the death pangs of a dying creation, but a present suffering, very real, with a hope of new life beginning. For Paul, in his day, there was an understanding that creation and humans would be saved, would be in salvation together, that God would work that process together. He saw it in terms of apocalyptic thinking, The idea of birth pangs kind of echoes that, that something is underway and something better is going to come. A crisis, perhaps, in between. We don't know the nature of that. But something more is coming. But look how closely creation is tied to us in the very next verse. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, that legal Roman term of status. We wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. So even as creation groans, even as we groan, and then later in very another verse, even as the spirit groans with us, something is underway. Allow me to take a few moments to, to look at just the three verses that we had in the reading and the time that I've sat with these over the years and more intensely in the last few weeks. Uh, let, me, let me offer you some ideas about those. First of all, they have a context in Romans. We have to look at the whole book. 
Romans, as I said, talks about shalom broken. Talks about God's remedy through Jesus Christ. Romans most definitely talks about how this received by grace. And Romans is very open, isn't it? Read chapter 7. About ongoing struggle in the midst of that transformation. So I would say to you that Romans 8 particularly is talking about suffering as well as hope and glory side by side. Look at this, or not. Let's try this. Romans 8, that chapter, and by the way, if you do memory work, there's so much there to store in your hearts. It's been a chapter for me over the years to memorize because there's so much going on there to help shape our thinking. But Romans 8 starts with an extraordinary statement, doesn't it? One that some of us have learned. Therefore, there is now, I forgot a word, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Flat out. But still, to the church in Rome, Paul has to address the question of suffering. Because Christians suffer, particularly in following Jesus, particularly in this world. So what will he say to that? He calls many witnesses and approaches it different ways. But in our verse for today, he calls creation as witness. All the non-human parts of creation. To talk about suffering and ultimate hope. Stay with me here because this matters. In some translations, and there's much discussion about this, that word that NIV and many translators and many folks who study the Greek agree is about creation, sometimes has been translated the creature. And in different contexts, it can mean that. But it gets confusing when you see what's going on with the creation. The creation, Paul tells us, waits in eager expectation, was subjected to frustration, will be liberated from bondage, will be brought into glorious freedom. Well, maybe that's talking about some group of humans. Well, it's something that Paul is at least saying is waiting in eager expectation for God's work. Most humans, not in Christ, not so much. Was subjected to frustration not by its own choice. So this is not this is an innocent victim here. Not so much a choice of some humans to be separated from God. This was something that was a victim. We'll be liberated from bondage, so shall we all. And we'll be brought into glorious freedom. Look in a bit. I love how J.B. Phillips puts 819, waits in eager expectation. He says the whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight. And actually the Greek word is about like craning your neck and looking and looking and looking. And in the message, uh, Eugene wrote, the created world itself can hardly wait for what's coming next. Something is going to happen, something good, something in God's plan. Romans 8.20, but right now subjected to frustration. And the, word, and the verb is was and still is. This is ongoing. So what is that about? So we dig into that and we see an echo of the beginning of Romans first. A first referral with the same word. Frustration meaning futility purposeless, kept from reaching its intended purpose. There's an echo right back to the beginning of Paul's writing in Romans 1. And surely he also had in mind what happened in Genesis with the disconnection of people. 
And I did it again. That's lovely. Okay? So watch that. And watch this. Not by its own choice, but the will of the one who subjected it in hope. So who did this? How did this happen? And we look deeper and we see that the verbs there are what's called the divine passive. That the actor isn't in view. But by untangling what Paul is talking about, God has allowed this. God has allowed this because God allowed humans a choice. And God also, subsequent to that, within that, gave humans dominion. But I don't think Paul was talking about the environmental effects. I think he was talking about the dislocation between humans and creation. And how creation is suffering on its own, not just from humans, but it's not quite right. More about that. But what is the hope? That creation will be liberated, set free from its bondage to decay, and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. I, when I first read this verse, I'm like, say what? <laughs> creation is going to be brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. What can that possibly be about? What is that? I would suggest to you that there's something more here than immortality. There's something more here than the ultimate victory over physical death. There is the freedom of truly reflecting God's glory, God's purpose and plan, God's shalom. We don't see that fully now, but we will. And I want to give you another picture. We speak of ourselves as a new creation, and we are in Christ. The old has gone. The new is here. We have not been destroyed. We have been changed. We have been transformed. And it's a now and not yet. Not fully, but Christ will, God will, entirely complete it in the fullness of time. And I suggest to you that this too may be possible for creation in the fullness of time. So why, if God is going to fill up everything and make everything right in the end why should we bother now maybe you are convinced as i am that the earth isn't just going to be burned up and we can talk about why many people think that's so instead transformed but why should we care about creation care now i'd like to suggest to you that the reason for that and i want to find something i have written here we know now in part what it means to live out our new identity, right? A foretaste of shalom. So it is for creation. Even though it will be completed in the end, we press on to bear witness and confirm and proclaim what God has done, is doing, and will do. We say we are transformed for God, by God, for love and mission in a changing world. Heaven came to live with us, we just sang, for a rescue like no other. In our own lives, in our relationships with others, and in creation itself, we're called to be a witness of shalom. We're called to bring a foretaste of what God's already doing. And in doing that, a powerful message about what God cares about and what God will do. So I turn in my thinking to see what the church is doing. In October 2010, 4,000 Christian leaders from 198 countries gathered in Cape Town 
South Africa, to discuss the critical issues of the time with church and evangelization. Third Lausanne Conference, as Sam knows much about, 35 years after the original one in 1974 called by Billy Graham. The Cape Town commitment presents a statement of shared biblical convictions and calls Christians all over the world to action. We share God's passion for the world, loving all that God has loved and made. Listen to these challenging words. They challenge me. We can't claim to love God while abusing what belongs to Christ by right of creation, by redemption, by inheritance. This world is Christ. We care for the earth. Not according, watch this, the rationale of the secular world, but for the Lord's sake. And Jesus is Lord of the earth. We can't separate our relationship to Christ from how we act in relation to the earth. Creation care, and we'd love to discuss this more in the discussion group, is a gospel issue within the Lordship of Christ. A couple of resources and then a couple of practical things to wrap up. Uh, One of the books that's challenged me, and I wrestle with some of his theology, comes from a Wesleyan perspective, but a very careful and uh, faithful Bible scholar. Salvation means creation healed. And I have many different other resources. Ask me, I'll email. If you or people you love are concerned about the care of animals, about humane care and other issues, I really strongly recommend a book called Dominion. It's been out for about 10 years. It's extraordinary. Matthew Scully is a Catholic believer, and he walks through why God cares. Yes, he's not, he's not advocating we all become vegetarians, but he's talking about how we bring shalom to how we interact with the other creatures on the earth. So five things, quick things, with pretty pictures. So I hope I can hold you for a little bit more, okay? Shalom with the earth. How do we step into that? The first one is a lovely thing, an easy thing. We are called to enjoy and celebrate creation. It turns out we're wired for it. More and more scientists are discovering, psychologists are discovering, our brain changes when we are outside. When we are observing nature, when we are among the trees, even this is Not as good, don't just substitute this. Even when we're watching videos of animals, our brain changes, little kitten videos, you know. But better still to be outside. And the sunshine, of course, itself acts on our brain, particularly in our short winters. And I've learned this over the years. We need sunshine. We need to be outside. And we honor God by doing that. Because creation is here in part, not all, for us to delight in and to thank God for. Shalom with the earth also means thinking about the next generation. How do we bring children into loving and caring for the earth? It turns out that kids that might be like very difficult in the classroom with ADD and such, I've seen this so many times, shine outside. Part of that is a physical activity that we don't have enough of in our, in our school system, public schools. But part of it is also the interaction with nature. Quite extraordinary. How else do we show shalom with the earth? With what we eat. Hello. What we choose to eat. How we might, with our purchases, support local farms. How we might choose purchases that are humanely raised, that reflect God's shalom. How we deal with the fact that that fruit in that picture won't be there if we lose honeybees. 
What can we do in what we eat and what we choose to reflect God's shalom? Because, listen, the earth, caring for the earth is caring for humans, isn't it? Our own well-being. But it's more than that. It's restoration. And I love this picture. And I have just a few sentences because I know I need to wrap up here. The kid on the left is 10 years old. He's in the Philippines. Um, He has been helped. He and his family have been helped by World Vision with food but also with different learning and training about what God cares about. And at a children's conference, he learned about trees and the earth, and he went back to where he lived. His name is Ralph, and he started this amazing tree planting project that World Vision is supporting because he realized it wasn't enough just to eat. Also, to grow things, that's even better as people learn to do that, but also the environment around people is their well-being. I like that story. You can read more about him on World Vision. And lastly, restoration. What about preservation? There are things here that need our care and our preserving. Now, sometimes we have to cut down trees because they might fall on a house or a car or a road. But sometimes there's trees that we need to live up because they are our lungs. That's one example of preserving. Sometimes we need to plant trees that we'll never see. Somebody said to plant a tree is to think well beyond ourselves. And that is what we're called to as Christians, to think beyond ourselves, to think about our neighbors, to think about the least. So shalom with the earth for me in my work is about living out an identity now. It's not a list of you should do this. Why aren't you doing that? And I hope I didn't give you that. It flows out of who I am as a child of God and wanting to follow my father and what God cares about and what God ultimately will do on this earth to reflect my father's work. So now, as we are new creations, a foretaste. Again, we're not going to fix it all, but we're going to do quite a bit and make a difference for people and creation, and we're going to be a witness to God's intended shalom. And beyond all else, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And may we pray as we did last week. Interesting that we pray this. Yes? Your kingdom come, Lord, on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.